Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with the BMJ, Effect of Restrictive versus Liberal Transfusion Strategies on Outcomes in Patients with Cardiovascular Disease in a Non-Cardiac Surgery Setting, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So hopefully we all remember the TRIC trial, the landmark RCT that compared restrictive, which was 7 grams per deciliter trigger, versus liberal 9 gram per deciliter trigger transfusion strategy in 838 euvolemic critically ill patients and they reported a similar 30-day mortality, a lower 30-day mortality with less sick patients, a lower 30-day mortality with younger patients, no difference in 30-day mortality in patients with cardiovascular disease and lower hospital mortality in the restrictive group 22.2% versus 28.1% p-value of 0.05. So TRIC started us on this journey where restrictive strategy was at least as safe as a liberal strategy and resulted in less transfusions. But there have been other trials. We had the GIT bleeding trial suggesting a restrictive transfusion strategy should be applied to patients with severe upper GI bleeding and current current international guidelines recommend decreasing the haemoglobin threshold level for transfusion in patients with gastrointestinal bleeding from 10 to 7 grams per deciliter. Systematic reviews of randomized trials of liberal versus restrictive blood transfusion strategies support a general default trigger threshold of 70 grams per liter or 7 grams per deciliter for most patient groups. However, guidelines highlight the lack of evidence and uncertainty about best practice for patients with acute or chronic cardiovascular disease. A systematic review of patients undergoing cardiac surgery suggested better outcomes with more liberal transfusions, highlighting the potentially important interaction between anemia, blood transfusion and outcomes for patients with cardiovascular disease. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence Guideline on blood transfusion recommends the optimal transfusion threshold for patients with ongoing acute coronary syndrome was 80 to 100 grams per litre. But there are no specific recommendations for patients with chronic cardiovascular disease. This systematic review and meta-analysis of restrictive versus liberal red cell transfusion strategies restricted to adults with cardiovascular disease excluding those who had cardiac surgery reports there were 11 trials that fitted the eligibility criteria. The trials enrolled 3,033 patients with cardiovascular disease of which 1,500 had restrictive transfusion and 1,500 had liberal transfusion. The trials varied in their trigger 70, 80, 90 grams per litre symptoms, duration of threshold and six looked at allergenic blood. The pooled risk ratio for the association between transfusion thresholds and 30-day mortality was 1.15, with 95% confidence intervals of 0.88 to 1.5, with little heterogeneity. 
the risk of acute coronary syndrome in patients managed with restrictive compared with liberal transfusion was increased. So nine trials, risk ratio of 1.78, 95% confidence intervals 1.18 to 2.7, p-value of 0.01. This corresponds, corresponds to 4.6 episodes of acute coronary syndrome per 100 patients when using restrictive strategies and 2.7 per 100 patients when using liberal strategies. To prevent one episode of acute coronary syndrome, 52 patients would need to be treated with a liberal transfusion strategy. So overall, this suggests it may not be safe to use a restrictive transfusion threshold of less than 80 grams per litre in patients with ongoing acute coronary syndrome or chronic cardiovascular disease. The authors conclude the use of a more liberal transfusion threshold that is greater than 80 grams per litre for patients with both acute and chronic cardiovascular disease should be used until adequately powered, high-quality, randomised trials have been undertaken in this cohort. Next, in critical care medicine, we have the pilot study for the TEAM trial, a binational, multi-centre, pilot, feasibility, randomised, controlled trial of early goal-directed mobilisation in ICU. So does early goal-directed mobilisation reduce the incidence and severity of ICU-acquired weakness? This multi-centre pilot feasibility RCT conducted in Australia and New Zealand from the team investigators follows on from their 2013 observational inception cohort study by setting out to establish if individualised EGDM, early goal-directed mobilisation, is feasible and to inform the design of a definitive trial of EGDM versus standard care. They enrolled 50 critically ill adult ventilated for greater than 24 hour patients in five ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. They excluded patients with delirium or brain injury or unable to walk prior to admission, cardiovascular or respiratory instability, etc. Patients were assigned to early goal-directed mobility which included active functional activities, walking, standing, sitting, rolling. The idea that patient actively participated in the exercise at the highest function level. The goal was maximum activity, supervised or assisted by mobility team for half to one hour per day, depending on their ICU mobility scale. And the actual time exercising depended on the patient's physiological and individual response. Standard care was usual practice for the ICU and all the participating ICUs had an ICU physio and the same equipment was available for standard versus EGDM patients. At baseline there were imbalances between the groups with respect to age. The EGDM group were 11 years older and median time from ICU admission to randomisation was 3 days. The primary outcome was maximum level of activity. So higher levels were achieved with the EGDM group at ICU discharge. And this persisted after adjustment for baseline variables. The other primary outcome, duration of activity. There was a greater duration of activity in the seven days after enrollment. Median of 20 minutes per day for the EGDM group versus seven minutes per day in the standard care group. With separation occurring at 
day three after involvement. Secondary outcomes, there was no difference in sedation, femoral lines, adverse events, hospital outcomes, or six-month quality of life hads returned to work. More EGDM patients stood and walked during ICU. Overall, this study shows that the application of EGDM by a mobility team is feasible and results in a significant increase in intensity and duration of physical activity in ICU and improved mobility. It doesn't tell us if the right dose was found, a median of 20 minutes versus 7 minutes per day, should there be more or less exercise than that? The best timing is 3 days from ICU admission to EGDM, the right time and whether or not this leads to benefit or harm and that wasn't the intention of the trial and there was no evidence of either. So this sets the stage for a larger RCT examining benefit and risk of EGDM with the AVERT trial results in stroke patients last year and the burden of long-term disability on survivors of critical illness, it is important to establish the best timing, duration and intensity of mobilisation in critically ill patients. Next in JAMA we have the effect of post-extubation high-flow nasal cannula versus conventional oxygen therapy on reintubation in low-risk patients, a randomised clinical trial. So the question, does the use of post-extubation high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy reduce the rate of reintubation in patients who are at low risk of reintubation. So BIPOP reported beneficial effects of high-flow nasal cannula post-extubation following cardiac surgery and other studies have reported benefits of high-flow nasal cannula for acute respiratory failure in critically ill populations generally. However, the population who are at low risk of reintubation have not been studied. So this multi-center RCT conducted in seven Spanish ICUs set out to answer this. They enrolled 527 ventilated adult patients who had been ventilated for greater than 12 hours and were ready to be extubated and deemed at low risk for reintubation. Patients were assigned to conventional oxygen, which is nasal, cannula or face mask, aiming for sats greater than 92%, or high flow. That was the Fisher and Pykel OptiFlow, commencing at 10 litres per minute, up titrated in 5 litre per minute steps until discomfort. The FiO2 was titrated to sats greater than 92%, and after 24 hours it could be stopped. They had pretty strict and very clear criteria for reintubation, which I won't go through. Sample size, they estimated 260 per group based on 80% power to detect a rate reduction from a baseline of 13% to 5%. Baseline data was similar between the groups, with the exception of a lower incidence of neurological comorbidity in the high flow group, although mean GCS was similar. The primary outcome, reintubation within 72 hours significantly decreased from 12.2% in the conventional oxygen group to 4.9% in the high flow group, an absolute difference of 7.2%, 95% confidence intervals, 2.5 to 12.2, P of 0.004. Now this was mainly due to a decrease in respiratory related reasons for reintubation in the high flow group. 1.5 versus 8.7%.
multivariate analysis revealed high flow was independently and inversely associated with all-cause reintubation. Odds ratio 0.32, confidence intervals 0.16 to 0.66, number needed to treat 14. Secondary outcomes. After adjusting all secondary outcomes for multiple comparisons, only FiO2 12 hours post-extubation, laryngeal edema, and a respiratory cause of reintubation remained significant. So overall, this study tells us that compared to standard oxygen, high flow is independently inversely associated with all-cause reintubation in low-risk critically ill patients. They got the baseline rate and the effect size right in their statistical design. The authors discussed the risk of masking respiratory failure with high flow and the ongoing need to explore the optimum duration of high flow and triggers for reintubation in high and low risk populations. Still, overall, a positive study and for those who like high flow, evidence that it's good. This of course was followed by another post intubation extubation study in China. The effect of non-invasion on non-intubation among patients with hypoxemia respiratory failure following abdominal surgery and RCT. So does the use of this idea of reducing the intubation ventilation issues and undergone abdominal surgery to develop a post-op hypoxemia? The rationale criteria for immediate reintubation like the last study. They estimated they needed 150 patients per group based on 90% power to detect an absolute risk reduction of reintubation of 25% in the NIV group, assuming a base rate of 65% in the supplemental oxygen group. Baseline data were similar between groups with atelectasis, tracheal secretions, pneumonia, pulmonary edema and pleural fusion, the most common causes of acute respiratory failure and 62% of patients were extubated within 6 hours of surgery. The mean PF ratio was 188 or to 200 and the respiratory rate 28. The mean time from surgery to acute respiratory failure was 2.5 days and from acute respiratory failure to enrolment 3, day, 3 days. So that is, it was 5 days from surgery to enrolment in the study with acute respiratory failure. 
we're not told how long NIV was provided for in the interventional data. In terms of the primary outcome, the reintubation within seven days significantly decreased from 45.5% in the supplemental oxygen to 33.1% in the NIV group. Absolute difference of minus 12.4%, 95% confidence intervals of minus 23.5 to minus 1.3 P of 0.3. Secondary outcomes, NIV was associated with a significant decrease in healthcare acquired pneumonia, days of invasive mechanical ventilation to day 30, hospital days to day 30, which were 27 in the NIV group versus 20.5 in the uh, standard care group. So overall, this study reports that the use of NIV in patients with acute respiratory failure developing within seven days of surgery, an average of five days, was associated with significant decrease in reintubation, requirement for invasive mechanical ventilation, pneumonia, and hospital length of stay. This seems plausible and valid. The limitations include the event rate being much less than anticipated, yet again occurring in a critical care trial, and the possibility of bias, because blinding wasn't possible. And finally, high-flow nasal cannula wasn't tested, so although NIV appears better than supplemental oxygen, the next question, of course, is how do NIV and high-flow nasal cannula stack up against each other in the acute respiratory failure after abdominal surgery group? Sticking with JAMA, we have the Dahlia trial. Effect of dexmedetomidine added to standard care on ventilator-free time in patients with agitated delirium. The Dahlia trial was a prospective RCT testing the hypothesis that dexmedetomidine, in addition to other aspects of standard care, would decrease the duration of agitated delirium and result in earlier extubation in ventilated critically ill patients. The details of this study, they enrolled 74 adult ventilator patients in whom the only barrier to extubation was deemed to be agitated delirium. Now agitated delirium included need for mechanical restraint, antipsychotic or sedative medication or both, CAM ICU results that indicated delirium, or a motor activity assessment scale, mass score of greater than or equal to 5. Patients were then randomized to dexmedetomidine starting at 0.5 mics per kilo per hour with a range of 0 to 1.5 versus placebo for up to 7 days. Sample size. A sample size of 96 patients was estimated to provide 80% power to detect a 20 hours difference. The sponsoring pharmaceutical company decided against prolonging funding in December 2013 resulting in the trial having to be stopped at 74 patients. Baseline characteristics were similar. Almost all patients were sedated with propofol. The primary outcome, number of ventilator-free days, which is the number of hours alive and free from requiring invasive mechanical ventilation up until day 7 post-randomization, were significantly increased in the dexmedetomidine group, 144.8 hours versus 127.5 hours, a difference of 17 hours, p-value of 0.01. Secondary outcomes, patients in the placebo group received significantly more antipsychotic meds, 65.6%, versus 36.8%. 
more opioid, and a significantly higher dose of propofol for the seven days after randomization. Dexmedetomidine was associated with decreased time to extubation, 21.9 versus 44.3 hours, a non-significant decrease in ICU length of stay, 2.9 versus 4.1 days, that's a difference of 1.2 days, and improved indices of delirium, that is time to resolution, delirium free days, improved mass. There is no difference in adverse events. So in summary, this study reports that the use of dexmedetomidine in addition to standard care for ventilated patients with agitated delirium who are otherwise ready for extubation leads to increased ventilator-free days, more rapid resolution of delirium, and decreased use of antipsychotic and sedative medication. In addition, there is a non-significant decrease in ICU length of stay. The authors comment that 21,500 patients were screened to recruit 74, limiting the applicability of this finding more generally, that is, earlier delirium, patients with agitated delirium and other reasons to remain ventilated. Still, this study provides evidence supporting the use of dexmedetomidine in this setting. It is a pity that the company stopped funding earlier, a decision they most likely regret now. Let's go to the New England Journal of Medicine with early versus late parental nutrition in critically ill children. So this is really interesting, a multi-center trial looking at nutrition in critically ill children. We don't see many of these. And it has come to us from Greet Vandenberg's group in Belgium. So the current PICU feeding guidelines, based largely on small studies with surrogate endpoints and expert opinion, advise care providers to initiate nutritional support soon after a child's admission to the PICU. The preferred route is enteral, but this is often uh, unable to be achieved in children. The subsequent initiation of parental nutrition to meet metabolic demands is an area where there is a lot of practice variation, similar, possibly worse than adults. This multi-center randomized controlled parallel group superiority trial sought to compare a strategy of early PN versus late PN, that was at 8 days, in critically ill children, newborn to 17 years, expected greater than 24 hours ICU length of stay, with medium or greater risk of malnutrition using the strong KIDS score of 2 or more. The study was conducted in centers that used early PN as standard of care. The early PN group received top-up PN, that is, PN to supplement any enteral nutrition they were already receiving to achieve their nutritional goals. The late group received this top-up PN on day 8. And of interest, the late group received IV 5% dextrose and saline to match the amount of IV fluid received by the early group. Both groups received glycemic control with age-specific ranges that varied between Belgium, who had lower intensive insulin therapy type protocols, the Netherlands, and Canada. The results, the sample size of 1,440 was predicted to have 70% power to detect a 5% lower rate of the primary outcome, assuming a baseline rate of 20%. The groups were similar at baseline. They received the treatment with clear separation of total calories, protein, carbohydrate and fat from day one to day eight between groups. And there were 
two primary endpoints. The first, new infection during the ICU stay, which occurred in 18.5% in the early group and 10.7% in the late group, adjusted odds ratio of 0.48, 95% confidence intervals of 0.35 to 0.66. The other primary endpoint duration of ICU dependency decreased from 9.2 in the early group to 6.5 in the late group, adjusted odds ratio 0 0.002, 95% confidence intervals of 1.11 to 1.37. There was no significant interaction between treatment assignments and pre-specified risk factors, and there was a higher likelihood of earlier discharge alive from PICU with late PN among children at high risk of malnutrition. There were many secondary endpoints. Uh, interestingly, there was no difference in antibiotic duration. There was no difference in any mortality endpoint. There was a significant decrease in duration of mechanical ventilation, 6.4 in the early group to 4.4 days in the late group. Significant decrease in renal failure with uh, requiring renal replacement therapy, 36 to 2.5%. Significant difference in LFT profiles, CRP, uh, decrease in hospital length of stay from 21.3 to 17.2 days, and there was more hypoglycemia in the late group. The authors conclude that withholding parental nutrition for one week in the PICU is clinically superior. That is, there is less infection, a shorter ICU and hospital length of stay, and better resolution of organ failure. And that this is irrespective of diagnosis, severity of illness, malnutrition, risk, or age. The associated increased risk of hypoglycemia with late PM didn't seem to harm anyone, and the higher CRP but lower infection rate in the late PM group is a good example of the limitations of surrogate endpoints. The accompanying editorial points out that more than 55% of early PM patients were discharged from ICU by day four, a group that would not normally receive PM. Also, 70% of the late PN patients were discharged by day 8 without PN. The use of strong kids has not been validated as a malnutrition in critical care. A threshold of 80% of enteral nutrition as caloric requirements was used as the PN supplement trigger, and there is evidence that 66 is adequate. So overall, this introduces the concept that overfeeding was responsible for the worse outcomes in the early PN group, a criticism that has been levelled at the intensive insulin therapy trials. So final thoughts. No doubt those who thought the earlier Leuven IIT trials showed that early aggressive parenteral calories are harmful will get confirmation that this is the case. The hyperglycemia argument that is interspersed will create much conversation. If you didn't practice early PN, you won't start now, and if you did, it will be hard to argue why. The best approach to supplemental PN in severely malnourished children that are critically ill remains unclear because they weren't a separate group in this study. Let's stick with the kids, and in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we've got early high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in paediatric acute respiratory failure, a propensity score analysis. Oscillation, a ventilation strategy looking for an advantage. In adults, the recent Oscillate and OSCAR trials suggest harm or no benefit. Oscillate, in the New England Journal in 2013, reported worse outcomes with oscillation versus conventional 
uh, ventilation in an RCT of 548 adult patients with early ARDS and it was stopped for lack of efficacy and possible harm. The OSCAR study, again in the New England in 2013, reported no benefit with oscillation versus conventional ventilation in an RCT of 795 adult patients with moderate to severe ARDS in 29 UK hospitals. In neonates, there's the UK Oscillation Study Group in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 that followed 319 of 797 extremely preterm children enrolled in an RCT to adolescents and report that those supported with oscillation had significant, although modest, improvements in respiratory function at adolescents. A meta-analysis of 3,229 preterm infants receiving oscillation versus conventional ventilation in 2010 reported no benefit or harm with overall relative risk of death as the outcome in BPD. In the post-neonatal paediatric population there have only been two RCTs enrolling 86 patients. This paper utilises the data from a cluster RCT of sedation strategies that enrolled 2,449 patients in 31 US PICUs, the RESTORE study, to conduct a secondary analysis that compares oscillation to conventional ventilation through a propensity matching model. They described 210 children receiving oscillation within 48 hours of intubation, propensity matched to 883 conventional ventilation or late oscillation children matched, including degree of hypoxia. Oscillation started within two days, had no association with 90-day in-hospital mortality, was associated with higher mortality in sensitivity analysis that derives an alternative propensity score model using all patients in the trial regardless of hypoxemia, was associated with a high use of neuromuscular blockers and opioids, and was associated with longer duration of ventilation to day 28. So what to make of this? Propensity scoring allows for assessment of distribution of possible confounders in the matching process as opposed to traditional multivariate regression in the post-matching analysis. The propensity score, in this case, the probability of being exposed to early oscillation included hypoxemia as a covariate and is designed to improve and make explicit matching. In this case, the early oscillation cohort were more severely hypoxemic or had cardiovascular failure, suggesting that there was still imbalance at baseline. Finally, oscillation was used beyond day two in the conventional group. So perhaps it is fair to say that this study raises further questions about the timing and benefit of oscillation, in this case in post-neonatal children. Given the lack of RCTs addressing timing and benefit in this population, perhaps it's time to do it. And last but not least, sticking with kids, we've got the outcomes of two trials of oxygen saturation targets in preterm infants, the Boost 2 Australia and United Kingdom collaborative groups. So this paper reports the outcomes of children in the Boost 2 trial at a corrected age of two years. So the Boost 2 trials are two of five comparative effectiveness trials collectively. These trials are known as the NEOPROM collaboration. These trials examine the targeting of oxygen saturations 
in infants born before 28 weeks gestation, comparing lower range, 85 to 89% SATs, to higher range, 91 to 95% SATs, with the primary outcome, death or major disability at 18 to 24 months. The hypothesis is that the lower target range was associated with a lower risk of severe retinopathy with no difference in cerebral palsy or survival, challenging the traditional higher physiological range approach. The 2013 results, the initial BOOST2 trial, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the same time as the COT group trial was published in JAMA. The trial randomized 2,500 infants born before 28 weeks gestation to 85 to 89% versus 91 to 95%. During the trial, a problem occurred as the Massimo radical pulse oximeter, widely used in the trials, reported an algorithm problem as fewer oxygen saturations in the 87 to 90% range were recorded than expected in the UK study. Investigation found a shift up in the oximeter calibration curve had occurred and a revision of the algorithm was provided. Analysis of oxygen saturation distributions showed that the revised calibration algorithm improved oxygen saturation targeting with clearer separation in patterns between the two study groups. Pooled analysis revealed that among the 1,260 infants for whom the original oximeter algorithm was used, there was no significant between-group difference in mortality. In the 1,055 patients whom the revised algorithm was used, infants with an oxygen saturation target of 85 to 89% had a 65% increased relative risk rate of death at 36 weeks, 21.8% versus 13.3%. The authors concluded that the avoidance of targeting an oxygen saturation of less than 90% among such infants according to readings on current oximeters in preterm infants born before 28 weeks gestation. So the 2016 paper, what does this add? Well, it brings them out to a corrected age of two years. In the Australian cohort of all oximeters, death or disability in the lower target range was 45% versus 39.8% in the higher target range, p-value 0.1. In the UK cohort, revised algorithm only, death or disability in the lower range was 50.5 versus 45.9% in the target range, p-value 0.15. In a pooled analysis of all death or disability in the lower target range, it was 48.1% versus 43.1% in the higher target range, p-value 0.02. In a pooled analysis of revised oximeters only, it was 49.5% versus 44%, p-value 0.07. And a pooled uh, analysis in the revised oximeter group death only, 24.5 versus 16.9%, p-value 0.001. So overall, this supports the 36-week finding, that is, lower target saturation goals in preterm infants led to non-significant increased risk of the combined outcome of death and disability, with post hoc analysis suggesting harm, depending on the analysis technique. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2016. Come to the website, or we'll see you next month. Thank you, and goodbye.